Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. All right, welcome back to episode 92 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose-aligned and performance-proven leaders. Speaking of, today I'm thrilled to connect with Kim Scott, author of New York Times bestselling Radical Candor and her most recent book, Just Work. Her experience at Google and Apple led Kim to developing groundbreaking leadership approach focused on caring personally while challenging directly. Kim believes radical candor is key for successful teams. She shares examples of how this transforms culture and offers advice for leaders looking to embrace this urgently needed philosophy. Kim, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. All right. Well, I was just kind of sharing with Kim before uh, we kind of went live here that I really enjoyed uh, preparing for this podcast. Usually sometimes it's you, you put questions together, you don't know how it's going to come together. There were so many questions that um, I'm just going to get started. So, Cam, I, I can't wait to uh, to dive in. I'm just going to start out right down the middle. Your book, Radical Candor, which I obviously everybody knows, and I think most people have read if they're uh, if they're serious about developing themselves in business, draws on your experience leading at places like Google and Apple. What originally inspired you to develop the philosophy of caring personally while challenging directly? You know, I think it probably began, I started thinking about this in a more structured way when I was CEO of a startup that failed. Uh, so CEO and, and co-founder. And I came into the office one day and a bunch of people had sent me the same article about how people would rather have a CEO who is sort of a total asshole, but really competent than one who is really nice, but incompetent. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. And so as I really started thinking about what makes for a great team and what makes for a great culture and, and, and what I really cared about, what I wanted my leadership to reflect, I started thinking about this in terms of like a two by two. <laughs> it took me several years to come up with care personally and challenge directly. Uh, and I think one of the eureka moments was shortly after I joined Google and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room and, you know, it was kind of a kooky scene. I felt a little bit nervous, but luckily the business was on fire. The meeting went really well. And in fact, I, I kind of came to believe that I was this genius. And I walked out of the room. I had walked past my boss and I was expecting sort of a high five. And instead she says, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I messed something up. And she began by telling me what went well, not in the feedback, but sandwich sense of the word, but really seeming to mean what she said. But of course, all I wanted to hear was what I had done wrong. And eventually she said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, like who really cared? And I kind of made this brush off gesture with my hand and said, yeah, I know it's, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then 
she said, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this part. No, you know, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all these new customers? And then she stopped and she kind of looked me right in the eye and she said, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this sort of got my attention. And it's, it's important to note that even though a lot of people would think that it was mean of her to say that I sounded stupid, it was actually the kindest thing she could have done because if she hadn't said it to me in just those words, and by the way, she never would have said it to other people on her team who were perhaps a better listener than I was. But with, she knew me well enough to know that if she didn't say it to me just that way, then I never would have gone to visit the speech coach. And I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had co-founded and raised money for different, two different companies giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this really got me to think. It was almost like I suddenly realized I'd been marching through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth. And nobody had the common courtesy to tell me it was there. And it, and that was what really got me to thinking, what, why had no one told me? But also, what was it about her management style that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And as I thought about it, I realized it boiled down to those two things, care personally and challenge directly. Oh, man, what a great story. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to we'll get back a little bit on track. I won't get too off track here. But as I was doing research, I'm thinking like, what do I want to know that I don't, that maybe people don't already know that maybe if they've listened to another podcast. So I'll try to throw some questions in there that okay. serve me right down the middle. But, you know, prior to the big name companies that you're associated with, like Dropbox and Twitter and Apple and Google, you you obviously manage, uh, managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo, and then you started a you know, diamond cutting factory in Moscow. And that's really, there's not a lot of information on that. So yeah. my question is, is like, how did these early experiences influence your career and ultimately start shaping your view on leadership? I'll go back even further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that the, probably my first management experience was that diamond cutting factory in, in Moscow. And this is going to resonate. This resonates very differently after the after the invasion of Ukraine. But when when I, I got I moved to Moscow in 1990, it was still the Soviet Union then, and I wound up taking a job with this U.S. based diamond company. And it was the job I had to do was to hire a group of diamond cutters for this diamond cutting factory. <laughs> that we were starting in Moscow. And I, I was really early in my career. I had studied Russian languages, Russian literature and languages. And I kind of dismissed business. I thought, oh, business is kind of boring. It's pretty easy. All you do is pay people. And it's going to be really easy here in, in, in Russia because the ruble has collapsed and I'm going to pay them in dollars. And they're just going to come work to me, work for me when I tell them what the salary is. But they didn't. They wanted a picnic. And I thought, well, okay, you know, I can do a picnic too. How hard can this be? So we, we got through the bottle of vodka on the picnic. And by the end of the bottle of vodka, I realized that the thing that I could do that the state couldn't do was to give a damn, to care about these people as individuals. 
because things were very shaky there then, not as shaky there as they are now, but people were people were worried and they wanted to know that someone would would help take care of them if if things started going sideways. And that was the moment when I thought that management is interesting, actually. It's just as interesting as the big Russian novels I read. Oh, that's awesome. What a, yeah, what a great story. Now, you, you gave a example, obviously, of your boss, you know, being very direct, saying, hey, you say um, every other word, uh, and it makes you sound stupid. But, you know, one of the core ideas in Radical Candor is real talk. And I think, you know, we're kind of working to that. But yeah that mean and why is it so critical for effective leadership in this day and age? You know, it is, I I think the best way to answer that question is to think about what radical candor is not. So radical, radical candor is what happens when you care personally and challenge directly at the same time. But if you want to boil it down to sort of a two by two framework, which all of life's hardest problems should be boiled down to a two by two framework, Sometimes we remember to to challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And this I call obnoxious aggression. And one of the common misunderstandings of radical candor is that people people will somebody I'll talk to someone about the idea and then I'll notice that they charge into a meeting and they'll say, in the spirit of radical candor, and then they will act like a jerk. And that is not the spirit of radical candor, that's the spirit of obnoxious aggression. And obnoxious aggression is a problem because it hurts other people. It's also a problem because it's inefficient. If I act like a jerk to you, you're likely to go into fight or flight mode. And then you literally cannot hear what I'm saying. So I'm wasting my breath. But it's also a problem for another kind of more subtle reason, which is, I don't know about you, but for me, when I realize I've acted like a jerk, It's not my instinct to go the right way on the care personally dimension of radical candor. So if you're thinking about it two by two, vertical line is care personally, horizontal line is challenge directly. Instead, it's my instinct to go the wrong way on challenge directly. And then I wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. If obnoxious aggression is front stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing. And... You know, manipulative insincerity is sort of passive aggressive behavior, political behavior, all of the things that erode trust, actually, most, and and also erode both obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity, kind of erode a sense of psychological safety. And these behaviors are sort of where the drama is. When things go sideways at work, It's usually, and we talk about it, we usually are talking about one of these two behaviors. If you watch The Office, you'll see a lot of episodes about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. But these are not actually the most common mistakes. By far, in a way, the most common mistake that most of us make is what happens in this fourth quadrant, where we do remember to show that we care personally, because actually most people are pretty nice people, despite everything. You read in social media, but you do remember to show you care personally, but you're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings or, or not offending them that you fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing in the long run. And that's what I call ruinous empathy. And sometimes people think that ruinous, that, that if they hang out in ruinous empathy for a while, 
then it'll be easier or safer to move over towards radical candor. But that's not the word. That just gives you feedback debt, which is even more damaging to your team than, uh, than I think, uh, technical debt is. Yeah. 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 And I think, uh, you know, when I look at the two by two quadrant and I love these simple two by two quadrants and I think everybody knows up to the right is the right direction to go. Uh, but I think, uh, Runa's empathy is where a lot of CEOs hang out and that's their challenge. Yeah. Like they don't know how to hold people accountable. We do a lot of work with hiring, you know, COOs to come in and be kind of the, ex- you know, the executor. And there's a CEO that's a visionary and I'm not giving us or them, uh, any outs, but I, I, that when I look at the chart and as you start to talk about it, that's what I start to visualize is like, that's where the CEO hangs out. And typically that's why they need a COO that is better at holding people accountable, but it doesn't necessarily uh, pull them completely out of, you know, their, uh, their issue because they have to have the radical candor with the COO too. Yes. Yeah. An interesting concept. And as you talk about it, I'm just visualizing that relationship between a CEO and a COO. Yeah. Were you in both of those roles in your career? I have been, I was usually the CEO. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been a COO. I did some, I was in some biz dev roles. Uh, I am, I am definitely more the visionary than I am the detail oriented operator, uh, as a just sort of by, by dent of personality. And, and when I was the CEO, especially early in my career, I often was ruinously empathetic. I mean, in fact, one of the most painful stories from my career came from being CEO at Juice Software. And there was, there was someone on the team who I had hired, who I liked a lot, smart, charming guy. And, uh, he, you know, he would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite and we're playing one of those endless get to know you games and everybody's really stressed out. And he was a guy who had the courage to raise his hand and to say, Hey, I can tell everybody's really stressed and wants to get back to work. I've got an idea. It'll help us get to know each other and it'll be really fast. And whatever his idea was, if it was really fast, we were down with it. And he says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents use when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. And weirder yet, we all remembered Hershey Kisses right here. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. His name was not really Bob, by the way. And uh, so Bob brought a little levity to the office. Everybody loved working with Bob. There was just one problem with Bob. He was doing terrible work. I'm so puzzled. I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments. I learned much later that the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy that he had at all times. But I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew is that Bob was handing stuff in to me with shame in his eyes. And I would say to him something along the lines of, oh, Bob, you're so smart. You're so awesome. Everybody loves working with you. Maybe you could make it just a little better, which, of course, he never does. So Part of that was truly ruinous empathy. Like, I really did like Bob, and I really did not want to hurt his feelings. But if I'm honest with myself, there was more than a little bit of manipulative insincerity there as well. Because 
Bob was popular and Bob was sensitive. And so there was part of me that was afraid if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, that he would get upset. He might even start to cry. And then everyone would think I was a big you-know-what. So the part of me that was worried about my reputation as a leader, as a CEO, that was the manipulative insincerity part. And the part of me that was worried about Bob's feelings, that was the ruinous empathy part. And two things can be true at the same time. Two things are going to happen. So this goes on for 10 months, and eventually the inevitable happens. And I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose all my best performers. Because not only had I been unfair to Bob not to tell him all along, but I'd been unfair to the whole team. And especially the people who were who were extremely talented, they were frustrated. Their deliverables were late because his deliverables were late. They weren't able to do their best work because they were having to redo his work. And they were going to quit and go work someplace where they could do their best work. And so I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realized by not telling Bob in no uncertain terms that his work was not good enough. I thought I was being so nice, and now I'm firing him because of it. Not so nice after all. But it was too late to save Bob. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again, and that I would do everything I could to help other people avoid making that mistake. Because as you say, too many CEOs sort of hang out in ruinous empathy. Oh, yeah. Slash manipulative insincerity, if we're honest. I've got uh, a friend, ex couple of friends, well, they always say a lot of people have all these deep rooted issues, but instead of like attacking and, you know, addressing them, they usually start a podcast. So that's not why I started a podcast, but I will share. <laughs> I am learning a lot by like these questions are like not only for the audience, but they're they're for me. I'll have to admit, like I'm like sitting here taking notes like, man, I, I think I can resonate with a lot of this, which, you know, the, the next thing like that kind of falls in, in the, the question uh, the thing that I want to know is give some ways or some tips for delivering criticism without crushing somebody's spirit. Because I think that, you know, obviously yeah. excuse we all have, but not giving, you know, direct feedback is you don't want to hurt their feelings. And of course we're right on this topic, but if you, is there some examples you can share of like stuff that has worked for you or you've seen work? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely an order of operations to radical candor and you should always start by soliciting criticism, not not giving it, no matter who you are in the relationship, but especially if you're if you're the person who's in authority, if you're a CEO or any kind of leader or manager, you you always well, no matter who you are, you want to start with soliciting feedback. But if if part of your job as as a senior leader is to create a culture of psychological safety, one of the best things you can do is to start by soliciting feedback. And by by rewarding the candor when you get it, it's not enough just to say thank you for the feedback. You actually have to either fix the problem or explain why you disagree if you disagree. And at a certain point, you you know you can't argue endlessly. You got to listen, challenge, commit. 
But you wanna you wanna do things the way your team wants to do them as often as possible. Russ Laraway, who I started a company with, used to say, "If we have data, let's do what the data says. If all we have are opinions, let's do it your way." <laughs> it was a inverse of what Jim Barksdale used to say. So, so I think that that's really important. Is you is you want to make sure that you're you're open to hearing other people's thoughts and ideas. Very often, especially if you've hung out a little too long in ruin of sympathy, there's you have some feedback debt in your relationships. And that means that there's something somebody's doing that's bugging you and has been bugging you for a while and you haven't said anything. And if this piles up too much, then by the time you finally do say the thing, you're likely to say it in kind of a mean way. And you also no longer notice what you might be doing wrong that's contributing to your frustration. So that's why you want to start with soliciting feedback. And then you also want to make sure that you're focusing on the good stuff. So I, I mentioned, you know, you don't want to offer anybody a feedback sandwich. I think there's a less polite term for that. But you don't want to sort of use praise as just a criticism delivery platform. <laughs> you know, you want to remember to focus on the good stuff. And especially, again, if you're in this situation where maybe you have a little bit of feedback debt uh, in, in the relationship, then you probably have forgotten the things that you appreciate about that person because you're so annoyed by the thing that you haven't said that that's sort of what's front of mind. So take a step back. And give voice to what you appreciate about working with this person, about what this person does. And now, now you're in a better frame of mind to offer some criticism. And by the way, I'm making this sound like some long drawn out process. This is not a six sigma. You can do all this in one conversation, <laughs> you know. So, so, so you want to make sure, or maybe it's three different conversations, but it's not like all this requires is emotional discipline, which. I know is at least for me is often in short supply. So what you want to do when you go into the conversation where you're going to offer some critical feedback is you want to make sure that you're being humble. Uh, that, you know, you could be wrong. So leave that <laughs> open. I call it candor and not truth. Cause if you charge in and you say, I'm going to tell you the truth, you know, you're kind of implying like I've got a pipeline to God and you don't know anything. And that's not a great way to start a conversation. So you want to be humble. You want to state your intention to be helpful. You want to do it right away, immediately. You want to, in the before times, I would say you want to do this in person. Now I'd say do it synchronously. And the phone is your friend, actually. Uh, th there's a lot of evidence that shows whether we're in person or on video, there may be more noise than signal in the other person's facial expressions and body language. We often misinterpret those things. Mm -hmm. So it might be better just to pick up the phone and call the person. But the point is to do it synchronously because what I'm going to tell you to do next is to gauge it. And you can't gauge how it's landing if you send an email or a text and, and Slack is just a feedback train wreck. I actually was coaching a CEO who wouldn't stop giving feedback over Slack and I quit coaching him. I'm like, I, like, I can't watch this train wreck happen another time. It's driving me nuts. 
So you want to, you want to do, you want to make sure that you're, you're having real conversations. That's really what radical candor is about is a conversation. You want to praise in public, criticize in private. And whether you're offering this person praise or criticism, you don't want to comment on their personality attributes. Instead, you want to use context, observation, and then result, and then next step. So in, in the meeting, that's the context. When you said, um, every third word, that's the observation. It made you sound stupid. That's the result. Go visit the speech coach. That's the next step. And, and that, there's a world of difference between saying that and saying, Kim, you're just too dumb to do this job. You know, <laughs> that's not really helpful. Uh, and so that's all, that's kind of what you want to keep in mind as you're going into the conversation, as you just start. But you want to remember that this is a dialogue, not a monologue. So you're, what you need to do next is gauge how what you're saying is landing. And if the person is sad or mad, that's when you want to move up on the care personally dimension. But sometimes the person will just brush off what you say. And that's when you need to go further out on the challenge directly dimension. Got it. You know, as you're talking about this, we're in the hiring world and senior level roles. There's got to be some direct correlation towards people uh, that aren't soliciting feedback to being poor interviewers, because the same thing holds true is yeah. like, a good listener in an interview. You can't think about what you're going to say. You really have mm -hmm. to be, you know, listening and, you know, concentrating on that. So that, that's one of the things I was, I was thinking about. And then, you know, one of the other things, do people, I find that in the professional world that humor is obviously we have to have fun. You know, I think yeah. I can tell that. I agree. But sometimes humor can be, not used properly like it you know if you're if you're always you know joking around about stuff then people don't necessarily know when to take you serious so if you're gonna have these direct conversations obviously you got to get it in the right mood is there anything that you have to like any tips around how to use humor and how not to use humor i guess because I, I see that as a challenge yeah you know we i spent some time one of the most fun things i ever did in my career is the, the the radical candor team and I went and hung out at Second City, and we made a, a course called the Feedback Loop. And the whole idea of that course is that this should be fun. Like this, this is about having better relationships and doing better work. And we're going to do better if we have fun together. And I learned a lot about humor hanging out at Second City, <laughs> especially there's. Uh, there, there's, uh, there's a woman there, Anne Bear, and she's the, she's a professor of comedy. Who knew that was such a thing? But she explained to us that the evolutionary purpose of humor is insight. So, ha ha, aha humor, <laughs> humor that helps us notice things that we were otherwise reluctant to notice is a great use of humor. Another thing to remember about humor is that it should never kick down. You know, humor can be a, a great way to speak truth to power, but if it's kicking down, then it's not funny, frankly. And also humor, like all communication, I think it's measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And so if you said something that you thought was funny, 
that upset someone else, then don't double down and insist that they should think it was funny. You know, uh, you want to take a step back and, and, and apologize and say, look, I, I, I meant that as a joke. I can tell it did not land. I'm really sorry. Uh, it's okay. Like if you, if you, humor often skirts the edge of what's okay and not okay. And sometimes if you, you're going to step over that line. And I think we're, we're at this moment where everybody is so terrified that they're, you know, but especially if you're like a CEO or senior in your career, you're safe. <laughs> you know what? It may be uncomfortable that you stepped over a line, uh, but don't double down. Just take a step back and, and, and don't apologize, by the way, before you understand what you did wrong. Mm. There's a wonderful book, uh, called On Repentance and Repair. And in that book, there's a lot that's written about the importance of acknowledging what you did wrong before you apologize. And if you're not sure what you did wrong, you're in an uncomfortable spot and you probably feel ashamed. At least I do when I'm in that situation because, you know, I feel ashamed because I hurt someone and I feel doubly ashamed because I'm ignorant. I don't even know why I hurt the person. And so what I try to do in that moment, and there's been a couple of moments that where I was giving a talk and I said something that offended someone and they, they spoke out public. Like it's, I get it. Like it's a real shame moment. <laughs> And I, I mean, I felt, I, I can tell you where I felt it. I felt that shame, like a tingling in the backs of my knees, the same sensation I would get if my children walked too close to the edge of a precipice. You know, it's a real actual, it's a physical fear, shame. But uh, Brene Brown had a great podcast about shame recently. And she said, you know, if if I feel ashamed, it is my job to move through that shame. It's not the job of the people around me to da dance around my shame. And, and so the best way, the best thing you can do is to acknowledge, say, look, I said something that I shouldn't have said, and I don't even know why it was wrong. I'm going to go and find out, but if you want to tell me, I'm open to hearing. So you don't want to put the other person on the spot for educating you. Go talk to other people about, say, this is what happened. Do you know why it was wrong? Someone will tell you if you talk to two or three people. So acknowledge what you did wrong. You want to also make sure that you're going to make amends. So, so there's a bunch of A's that precede your apology. So you want to acknowledge what you did wrong. You want to make amends. Very often people use an apology to avoid accountability. And that is a misuse of an apology. <laughs> so, so you want to make amends. Uh, and then, and then, and then you want to, you want to apologize. And only then after you apologize, you need to change. If you do it again, then your apology is rendered null and void. Mm, man, what those are some good nuggets there. I would agree uh, with that, especially when people I appreciate when people say they're sorry and that's it. There's no but. And then I don't know. And that's it. You know what I mean? Kind of respect yeah. people when you know, they're sincere about it and they don't try to drag it on. So, man, a lot of uh, really powerful stuff there. 
in my next book, which was originally called Just Work, but the title Just Work just didn't work because people thought I was telling them just get back to work, which is not the point of that book. But I talk a lot about how to apologize and also how not to apologize. Like, I'm sorry you feel that way is an obnoxious apology. It's not, it's an, an obnoxious non-apology, you know? Uh, so there's, there's, uh, lot, lots more to be said about that. Awesome. I, I can't wait to read it. I, uh, how I came into your work is my coach about four years ago, uh, told me to read Radical Candor. So, oh, good. Clearly, you know, there are some areas of opportunity for me. So I, this was exciting to kind of get on the phone. I'm going to send him this, uh, when we're done showing yeah. is his name, but he's a big fan of yours. Um, you know, talk a little bit about, I'll, I'll gear some questions more towards kind of high, like executive level hiring and, and stuff like that. Cause I think it will get some insights from it, but you talk about, you know, challenging directly, but with care, how should we translate that when evaluating, giving feedback to C-suite candidates? Cause they're, you know, they're always like, Hey, can you give me feedback? And I want to give it, but I don't want to over, you know, like, I don't want to give too much and put somebody or one of my clients in a weird spot or you know, sometimes less is more, but, uh, so any advice that you have, you know, in the area of giving C-suite candidates, uh, feedback? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually are on the side of giving probably more feedback, uh, than, than a lot of people do. I think that it, it, because I think I find that you build relationship with these candidates when you tell them what happened. Like there was one time when I was interviewing someone and he was incredibly rude to the scheduler. He was so rude to the schedule scheduler. At one point I, I walked by her desk and she was in tears. And when she explained to me what he had said to her and how he had treated her, I realized we couldn't extend an offer to this person. And and I debated, should I tell him or should I not tell him? Because this was a pretty senior person. <laughs> And he had a particular reputation and I, and I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to make him angry. And I didn't, I was also didn't want him to go and on the attack uh, of this, this person, but I decided it was the right thing to do to tell him. And he was really upset about it. He was really, really upset about it, but he also knew it was true. And I think he learned something important. And he told me years later how grateful he was. Um, there was another time, this was even more difficult. There was another time where we were hiring someone who I, who I actually knew personally and I really liked him. And he, he came in and I don't know what was going on with him that day, but he like kept staring at people, at the women's chests. <laughs> And it like to the, to the, to the point that it was unsettling. And, and I, and, and they were like, they put their foot down. They're like, you cannot extend this guy. And, and I told him, I was like, you cannot do that, you know? And, and it was, that was like, that was a really hard one. But I think it was important for him to know. Like, I don't think he was aware that he was doing it. And it was, it was hurting. It was going to hurt him. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. I think, uh, that was some that was some rough radical candor. That's a rough radical candor, her. but there are some people that just they don't have anybody in their life that is helping them be more aware. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. So, you know, when you do that, you're helping them. Uh what, what about uh, what are some good ways to assess if an executive will thrive with radical candor during the interview process? Yeah. 
I think a great question to ask them is what's the best, what, what's the most useful criticism you've gotten in your career? Mm. And I think it's important to use the word criticism. Like don't talk about feedback. Definitely don't talk about feed forward. Don't, you know, criticism. Well, like what was the most useful criticism? And if they start talking to you about criticism that they got from their boss or their boss's boss or somebody more senior, that's great. But ask them a follow-up question. What's the most useful criticism one of your employees ever gave you? Mm. And if they can't think about a time when someone who worked for them gave them criticism that they acted on, that's, in my mind, a red flag. 100%. Yeah, that is, that is wonderful. You know, one of the questions that we joke around in the hiring world that is kind of off limits, but it is like, I will throw it in there for certain people that kind of deserve it. I know that sounds terrible, but the question is what wrongful assumptions do people have about you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody that a smart leader will go avoid that question at all costs. People that, you know, that are unaware, they'll just walk right into it and they'll, you know, kind of tell you and whatever they tell you, take note of that because that's yeah. something that you should watch out for if they, if they just flat out tell you. But um, so t- uh, tell me about, have you seen any red flags that indicate senior leader might flounder with ra- radical candor? So you, you've given a good example. Now I want to kind of see the opposite, you know, let's see if I can flip it a little bit. You mean if you if you offer them radical candor and they or, or they or they won't or they don't give feedback? No, I'm, I'm asking. Um, like, have you seen any red flags that would indicate a senior leader might flounder with radical candor? You mean giving it or getting it? Uh, getting it. Yes. Getting it. Right. Getting it. I mean, you can always share some some critical feedback uh, about the for, to them, and and you might want to do it uh, when they're pretty close to accepting the offer. <laughs> you don't want to turn them off. Uh, but, but I think that if you, you can notice how they respond. Say, you know, there's, there's one thing that I'm, I'm worried about. And, and, cause you probably have noticed something, uh, that, that wasn't perfect. Uh, and I mean, nobody is perfect. And, and see how they respond to, to a little, a little dose of radical candor. I think the other thing that you can do is you can, when you're in the, when, when you're sort of checking references, make sure you check references from people who worked for them as well as their peers and their, their managers and ask, you know, how does this person respond to feedback? Um, and, and, that that's a sure way to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's something that we do actually with peers, people that report up, and then obviously that people that report to. And you'd be amazed. that maybe you wouldn't, but how many people don't expect that? You know, and and you're kind of asking like, hey, can I, you give us a couple people we can we can contact? Yeah. So that that is. Uh, but but if, but if you get the names from them, you're, you're, you know, what you really need to do is figure out who you know in common and yeah. Uh, uh, to get, at least in my experience. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is where, you know, people, there's a lot of reasons why LinkedIn kind of sucks and everybody's trying to sell each other stuff in LinkedIn. But 
you go to the person that just took the role over of, you know, somebody that just vacated a role, you see they're pretty good. You know, you just ask for some, some information that might help you understand this person better. And, you know, they're not yeah. necessarily associated with this person. They're now in their role. Yeah. So I found that that can be a good way to, you know, just find out some details without, you know, without it uh, being planted information per se. Yeah. You know, another thing that I've often done is, when, when I go to lunch, I'll, I'll take them to lunch and notice how they treat the waiter. Uh, that's often, a, I've sometimes gotten some real red flags from people. You want to make sure that, that, that people treat everyone with respect. And not everyone does, especially as they get more senior in their, in their careers. Yeah, 100%. Anytime somebody asks me the question, I've been on some podcast, whatever it is, if I could have a superpower, what would it be? Well, my superpower would be to follow people around. They don't know I'm watching. Yeah. Because that to me is like how you're going to really gauge who somebody yeah. really, like how do they treat their kids? How do they treat, you know, their neighbor, whatever it is, but that's yeah. kind of the same, uh, same type of concept. Another, another thing, by the way, that I have found is people get unguarded when sometimes I'll walk them to their car. If, if, <laughs> and for some reason, they'll say something really outlandish, uh, you know, just as they're about to get in the car. And I'm like, wow, you just really told me who you actually are. You know, some, some they feel free when they're out of, out of the building, if you're uh, interviewing in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a friend, I won't disclose who they are, but they run a very successful restaurant. And um, it's become very big. So that she isn't doing this anymore. But she used to interview people in, you know, for serving positions. She'd follow them to their car. If their car was dirty, they did not get the job because they had to, you know, one of their yeah. main jobs was taking care of the equipment. Yeah. And if their car was dirty, clearly they're not taking care of their own equipment. Oh, I wouldn't get that job. <laughs> My car is <laughs> filthy. But it's a good, yeah, you, you, you know, I had a, I one time took a job and my, and the guy who hired me wanted to come to my house for some reason. Uh, to, to, it was on, he said it was on his way home and I didn't really think anything about it, but I realized he was, he wanted to see what, you know, was kind of like following me to my car. Luckily, my house was in better shape than my car. <laughs> That's awesome. When it comes to, you know, sticking on kind of the, the hiring theme, what other, you know, what other things would you suggest? Because I think this is uh, anybody that has any like uh, a values, they have company values. I think some shape or form, radical candor is going to be you know part of their value system, or you would hope. So this is more about, and you've given some great advice, but even thinking through it further, like what other things are actionable from, you know, from the interviewer to really dive deep and continue to find, uh, you know, figure out if somebody uh, is, you know, in the mindset of radical candor, both from receiving and, you know, and giving. So for both. Yeah. One of the, one of the questions I like to ask is, you know, what, what was the time when someone gave you some feedback that stung a little bit in the moment, but stood you in good stead for the next five, 10 years and, and, you know, get them to tell a story rather than, give you an abstraction. I think stories reveal so much more than abstractions. And then I'll ask them sort of for their Bob story. What was a time when you failed to give someone feedback? And what were the consequences? Because I think if someone, we all have that experience. There's no, nobody on the planet has 100% of the time said the thing they know. 
And if they have a story about a failure to deliver feedback that demonstrates that they understand the impact that it had and why it was a problem, then I think that they, that's a good sign, actually. If they say, oh, I always give, like, that's the big lie. Like, I wrote Radical Canner and I fail to give feedback all the time still. (laughs) You know, I believe in it to my core, but it's hard. Um, so I think that can be very helpful. And then I think you also want to know, do they understand how to flex for different people? So, so I would sort of almost get into like a role play with them. So let's imagine that I'm your employee and I am showing up late all the time. And I'm a very sort of defensive, not likely to hear what you're saying person. Like, how would you say it? And then I'll adapt some totally different persona. Okay, I have the same problem. I've been late all the time, but I'm super sensitive. Uh, and so how are you going to say it to me? You know, and get, see if the person can understand that, that what, that being an authentic leader doesn't mean treating everyone exactly the same. It means adapting to the person who you're speaking with. It means paying attention to the emotional impact that you have. And adjusting how you're talking. Man, I love that. We uh, we were lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Ann Rhodes when we started our business. And mm-hmm. she was the chief people officer at Southwest Airlines for a while. And one of the questions they asked for uh, for their HR roles was, tell me about a time when you broke a rule for an employee. Yes. And my, you know, same thing. It's like they're, if they can't think of anything, you got to be worried. You know, if you've dealt with people and yeah. like, rules and policies, like, and you've never had to, like, figure out, you know, an adjustment for somebody um, that's interesting. T- talk about, you know, I'm trying to hit some areas that maybe a little bit more in common or that are more prevalent now. Talk about how remote and hybrid work, you know, you talked about picking up the phone. I love that because that's not gone out of uh, fashion, just picking up the phone and getting voice to voice. Actually, maybe it has gone out of fashion. Lately, when I've been doing talks, especially employees who are relatively re- recently out of school, they they really are reluctant. They, they act like picking up the phone is a radical thing to do. And I'm like, well, be radical then. Uh, because, because you've got to learn how to have a conversation. And they're like, oh, it's so much easier to, you know, to just send something over Slack. And I'm like, it's easier until the person totally misunderstands what you say and is furious with you. And you spend the next two months digging out from under it. Then you realize it wasn't easier, but often they don't know that. So I think like remembering how to have a conversation is something that maybe we got out of the habit of doing during COVID and also maybe something that is a little countercultural with, with younger employees. Yeah. 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 No, I, I sense that as well. What I, speaking of younger employees and, and more recent, so hybrid and remote work, you know, talk about like how that might have adjusted your philosophy or not on, you know, radical candor. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is, I think it's easier to be radically candid when you're in person, but I don't, I, I'm a huge believer in remote work. I'm sitting here in my house and our team is distributed all over the country. So I'm a, a big believer in that. It's like, it's more important to be in person with your family than with your work colleagues. I'll put it that way. 
So I think the things that you can do that make it easier, and a lot of the principles are actually the same. When, when in the before times, I used to say, have these conversations in person, and now I say, have them synchronously. And but the same principle applies. If you're in person, I recommend taking a walk, not sitting, staring at each other. Because as I mentioned, there's more, more noise than signal in facial expressions and body language. And there's something about walking in the same direction that is psych- psychologically useful. Same thing with the telephone. Pick up the phone. Don't have a video call because we, you know, first of all, there's a lot of distractions. None of us are as good as we should be about shutting down all our notifications. But also when someone's just a tiny little box, you're, there's even less, there's even less signal. There's even more noise about uh, when you're trying to interpret their facial expressions and body language. I think when we were in person, you could often sort of walk by someone's desk and get a sense of how they were doing. And when you're in a remote situation, it's more important to have more frequent, shorter conversations. So if you're all in the same physical location together, I think once a week, one-on-one is fine. But and you want to have probably a longer conversation, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. But if you are remote, I think it's a better idea to have three or four 15-minute one-on-ones with the person. Because we often will draw too many conclusions from that one time we saw the person in a week. We may have got them at a great moment. We may have got them at a terrible moment. And if you have more frequent, shorter uh, one-on-ones, then that is helpful. I, I learned this actually early in my career. I was, when I was working in Moscow again, my boss used to call me first thing when he woke up every morning, which was late in the afternoon, my time in Moscow. And that was, re- he said it was really important. He had, he had people all over the world in, uh, in, in remote locations. And he said it was really important to just pick up on the, on, you know, a person's voice to know what was going on with the person. Otherwise, the person could be in crisis and you don't even know for a week. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I would agree with you, too. I, it's funny. I we I post content about remote work and hybrid and everybody always thinks I'm trying to argue that that, you know, hybrid is better or where the future is going. I always talk about statistics and I personally uh, love the fact that I get to work remote, I've got to, I've yeah, got to kids in college. I got to spend more time with my five-year-old probably than I did, you know, in twice the amount of time with my 18-year-old. So yeah, and that matters a lot to me. So uh, COVID, and I mean this in the most caring way, was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because I was going to continue to work r- remote no matter what. It just kind of gave me an excuse to work remote, quite frankly. So yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm following you there. So a uh, couple things, and I'll, I'll start wrapping up because I want to be respectful of your time. This has been absolutely amazing, better than I thought it would be, which I already had kind of a high <laughs> bar. So it, let's play this out. So you're, you know, you, I know the X and Y axis. So you're, you know, you, you're getting personal with somebody. And then what what happens when somebody divulges almost like too much information? Yeah. Here, and then all of a sudden you're down this road. What type of like, what do you do at that point? Yeah. What, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, caring personally, uh, is, part of caring personally is respecting the other person's boundaries and asking them to respect your boundaries. And 
So you want to make sure that you, if someone crosses a boundary for you, that you say, you know, thank you for telling me that, but this is not something I'm, I'm comfortable hearing about. And there was, there were, I'm not even going to tell you what it was, but there were a couple of times during COVID where people told me stuff that I'm like, I'm like, you know, I understand and I'm compassionate with what you're going through, but I, I can't talk about this. It's not a topic that I'm willing to talk about. And, uh, uh you know, when, when people were very lonely and, and they were, they were, they were more apt to overshare. So I think that, that caring personally doesn't mean getting creepily personal and it doesn't mean stepping over boundaries. So I think you have every right if something feels like not the right thing to talk about to say, you know, not to say you're wrong, but I'm not comfortable talking about this. I think that's yeah. a perfectly fine thing to say. Yeah, I mean, you can be a great leader, but that doesn't mean you're a therapist. Uh, so I no, think no, no. Although I think, you know, I tell a story at the beginning of Radical Candor about coming in, I had to make this pricing decision, and one person had an issue, another person had an issue, a third person had an issue, and I and I had blown through all the time I had set aside to make this pricing decision. And these were not people who were oversharing. They were having legitimate <laughs> issues that they needed to talk to somebody about. And, and I remember calling my coach and saying, what am I, a, a CEO or a therapist? And, and she said of these conversations, this is called management and it is your job. And it's interesting to think I actually talk to my therapist, like at what point do, at what point have I crossed a line as a coach where I need to say to someone, you know what, this is an issue you need to raise with us. I'm not trained, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not trained to help you deal with this. You need to go see a therapist. And, and there have been a couple of times where I've said to people, you know, either as a manager or as a coach, I'm like, this is beyond, this, this requires professional help and I don't have that expertise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thing I also want to talk about is how the audience can get a hold of your work. Obviously, they can go buy the book Just Work, Radical Candor, which I think um, you know, when I'm thinking about this, I don't know one leader that it doesn't it's not applicable for. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, but I I yeah, I mean it's really fascinating that, you know, any person no matter, you know, what they've been able to achieve in their career this is a topic that is, you know, they're still working on, I wouldn't call it perfecting, but they're still working on developing and, you know, making it, uh, uh, you know, continue to develop in that area and, and having the right conversations and knowing when to, you know, push back, knowing when to listen. But to talk about the, you know, your work, what you're up to now. I mean, where the where's the best place for the audience to to get a hold of your work, aside from buying your books, which obviously you can get anywhere on Amazon and, and anywhere else that that's selling books, but what what else is there? Is there any any coursework and anything like that? Coaching work, anything like that that you are currently engaging with? Yeah, absolutely. We have a podcast, so check out our podcast anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. It's called Radical Candor. We also developed. I mentioned we worked with Second City, and we developed this course, which is an online course. It feels more like a sitcom than, than your usual management training. It's five 10 minute shorts. It's called the feedback loop. You can, you can buy it on our, on our website and it's really fun. Starring David Allen Greer 
And it's funny. It helps you understand the framework, understand how to use the framework to give, to, first of all, to solicit feedback, to give praise, to give criticism, and to gauge how it's landing. And then there's some improv exercises in between each of the episodes if you want to try those out with your team. So I think it's tons of fun. I love it. We also have another course called Learn from the Expert. So we're, we're starting to experiment with, uh, with, with some, some fun and different ways of delivering the content. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. This is, like I said, been amazing, perfect for our audience. I think it's going to meet a lot of people where they're at. Is there any question that, that I should have asked you that I didn't? that might be insightful just based on kind of, you know, real time here? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the questions that a lot of people have is they'll, they'll bring us in, we'll do a talk, we'll do a half day workshop, whether it's me or some of the, some of the canter coaches. And then the, the question is, okay, we, we buy this, we want to do this. How do we make it, how do we keep it top of mind? Because in some ways, right, Radical candor, what we're talking about is a pretty big behavior change, maybe even a bigger behavior change than deciding you're going to exercise or change your diet or something like that. It's, it's hard to keep it top of mind. And so I think that the most important thing that especially leaders can do is get into the habit of soliciting feedback at the end of every one-on-one. Ask people, you know, what could I, or say it in, don't, don't write down my, my question. Write down your own question. Say it in your words. But some version of what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me. And then reward that candor. Make sure you're soliciting feedback all the time. And amazing. Amazing. I think we could probably, most of us could always use that advice. And uh, I sincerely appreciate your time. You've been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Wise Scouts. You can find all of our past and uh, future podcasts at wisecouts.com. Kim, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 wherever you get your podcasts.